All right. You know, one of the, I mean, it was great to have the kids singing here today, and of course, just to have them sing. But one of the advantages of that as well is you were all on time because you had to bring your kids here early. So I thought that was great too. You know, there's so many services we get started and it's like, it's like 8.57 and I'm like, well, this is the Sunday everyone doesn't come to church today. So, but uh, it's great you're all here this morning and on time. Uh, okay, so we are continuing on in our sermon series, finding a steady on finding strength in the book of Hebrews. And uh, as we've been talking about, the focus of Hebrews is on persevering in the faith when things get tough. And we're going to focus on the things get tough side of this uh, series this morning, because one of the things that can tempt us to falling away from our faithfulness to Christ is suffering. And that was the situation with the original readers of the letter of Hebrews that we've been studying. It wasn't just that there was some shiny new object that uh, was distracting them from Christ or drawing them away uh, from their faith. Things had gotten hard, and faithfulness to Christ was becoming costly. And they weren't sure that sticking it out in faithfulness to Christ was worth the effort. As we've talked about in previous uh, sermons, they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and they were thinking about retracing their steps back into Judaism as a means of escape. They're kind of like hikers that have started off at the bottom of the mountain with a view to going to the top to seeing the vista at the top of the mountain. And as they're moving up the mountain, things are getting increasingly difficult. And now they're halfway up the mountain, as it were, and they're beginning to question whether the view from the top is really going to be worth all the trouble and the effort and the pain that they're going through to get there. And they're thinking about retracing their steps back down to the bottom of the mountain. Often when we are tempted, likewise, to abandon faithfulness to Christ, it isn't just because we are drawn away by some... Uh, competing pleasure. That can be the case at times. But sometimes we are tempted to abandon faithfulness to Christ because faithfulness and obedience are just hard. The brokenness of the world around us, the brokenness that comes from the sins of others, the brokenness and suffering that comes from our own sin stands between us and the end of the journey. And trying to scramble over all the the boulders of brokenness that lie between us and glory force us at times in our lives to come to grips with how much we really believe in the promises of God and how much we really value them. So today's passage speaks to this issue of persevering through suffering. And perhaps you've come here this morning and you are... You're just about done in. I know that that's the case for some of you because I've talked with a number of you this week with various different trials and circumstances and health issues, relationship issues. It's a, a wide variety of things, but it's been a hard week. And for many of you, it doesn't promise to get easier anytime soon. And it's hard to think about persevering on in faithful obedience to Christ in the face of that. That's not all of us this morning. For the rest of us, maybe things are going okay, but all of us are going to have that week, whatever that week is. It's coming for us. So best to be prepared. If you 
one of my non-Christian friends here this morning, and you're uh, listening in uh, on this sermon series, this instruction to Christians, I invite you to listen as well, because suffering and difficulty are just the domain of humanity. All of us are going to experience suffering and difficulty. And so I invite you to listen in to see how Christians are instructed by God's word to navigate the paths of suffering and difficulty, and I commend it to you. So our passage this morning is 2, 1 through 9. And uh, as you are turning there, if you're not there already or opening back up to that, let me just recount briefly what we covered in chapter 1, because the author in chapter 2 is carrying on the same flow of thought that he began in chapter 1. Just as a point of note, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not original to the authors, and so we have to put them somewhere, and historically this is where it got put. But the fact that there's a difference in chapter doesn't necessarily denote the fact that there's a difference in the flow of thought, and that's the case here. The author is continuing on in the same, uh, the same flow of thought that he began last week. So let me just recount briefly where we were, remind us what we've, the ground we've covered, and then we'll hit our text running. We saw last week that the author began by detailing the advantages of Jesus over the angels. Next, to the angels, or next to God himself in the Jewish tradition, the angels were the high watermark. And so they were the great powers in the Jewish system of belief. And all throughout the letter, the author's burden is to convince his readers to not go back to the Judaism that they had left behind, but to hold fast to Christ as the, as the great fulfillment of their Jewish faith and their Jewish heritage. And so the author is identifying certain aspects of, of their Jewish faith and showing how Jesus is better than these aspects of their Jewish faith that they have now left behind. And so he begins with angels to show that these great powerful beings that exist under the old covenant have been have been replaced or superseded by the Son of God himself. So your old way of relating to God gave you angels, but the new covenant gives you the Son. The message of the, ch the chapter, and it's continuing on here, is don't settle for the lesser power of the servants of God when you can have the divine power of the Son of God. That's the point that's being made so far. So our text picks up here in that same train of thought here in chapter 2, continuing on with this focus of the son's superiority over the angels. The author starts in chapter 2, verse 1, you note, with an admonition. We must therefore pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Closer attention to the message that we have heard from Jesus. There's kind of two competing messages now that are being uh, held out for analysis. There's the message that has come through the angels, as it were, and there's the message that has come through Jesus. This idea of the message being declared through angels, you can see as we move through here into verse 2, for since the message declared by angels, what is he referring to? Well, it became uh, a fixture of the Jewish tradition. Paul mentions it also in Galatians 3.19. We find it here that when God gave the law to Moses, angels were involved in the giving of the law. So we don't find that in the, in the actual scripture text in the Old Testament, but it, it was a tradition that was carried orally by the Jewish people, and Paul notes it. It's noted here. And so the message delivered by angels is a reference to the Mosaic law that was given to God's covenant people. And so what the author is saying is, listen, if the message that was given 
by God through angels to his people was one that we should pay attention to. How much more should we listen to the message that has been given by God through his son? And in verse 3, the author poses a sober rhetorical question. If the apostasy from the message given through angels was met with retribution, how much more should we expect that apostasy from the message given through Christ will be met with retribution? The logic here is similar to what we find in Matthew chapter 21, one of the parables that Jesus told. You might remember this parable, but Jesus tells the parable of a, of a, of a landowner who had tenants who were farming his land. And so he sent his servants one by one to go collect the rent from the tenants. And the first servant that he sent was beat up. And the second servant that he sent was killed. And the third servant that he sent was stoned. And so finally, the landowner sent his son. And the tenants killed the son. And Jesus asks basically the question of, if the landowner wasn't going to tolerate the killing of his servants, how much less is he going to not tolerate the killing of his son? Jesus, of course, was telling the parable in reference to himself as the son in reference to the religious leaders who were the tenants. But it's the same sort of logic here. If God didn't put up with apostasy from the message that was given by angels, how much less is he not going to put up with apostasy from the message that is given by his son? It's a strong warning. But we're not going to linger over it here, not because it's unpleasant, but we're not going to linger over it here because we're going to encounter a number of these kind of passages all throughout the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as we're going to see, is both carrot and stick. And so it's carrot, Jesus is better than the angels, don't like, keep pressing forward, there's a reward to be had, but there's also some stick involved in the book of Hebrews, as we're going to see. That to abandon the way of faithfulness and obedience to Jesus isn't fundamentally an option. As we're going to see in the weeks to come, frequently throughout the letter, the, letter, the author of Hebrews warns his readers of the dire consequences of falling away. We're going to have to grapple with this. There's going to be some troubling passages that we're going to encounter along our journey through Hebrews. But because we're going to encounter a number of these warning passages, I'm not going to focus on them here today, except to say that the author makes it plain, and then even more plain throughout his letter, that there really can be no going back. The only way forward is forward. And so as much as you might be tempted to go back, the author will cut that exit off and say the only way forward is forward. But we'll pick up these warning passages in the weeks to come where we can spend sufficient time to explain them more in more detail. But we continue on in verse 5, and the author is still, as we note, focusing on Jesus' superiority over the angels for all the reasons that we talked about last week. And he quotes here then in verse 6 from Psalm 8. It's a beautiful psalm. He quotes it uh, here, and he is showing that it has been God's plan all along to give the dominion of the earth over to human beings. So if you remember back all the way, maybe even into the Created to Need series from last fall, but in Genesis chapter 1, when God makes the world, he doesn't give the dominion of the world to angels. He give this, gives the dominion of the world over to humanity. And the author picks up this point saying that 
that the dominion over the world, the subjection of all things, isn't to angels. It's, in fact, to humanity. And Jesus, as humanity's favorite son, so to speak, is the one of whom Psalm 8 is the most true. Jesus, more so than any other human being, is crowned with glory and with honor. He is the one who is given dominion over all things and to whom all things have been put in subjection. All right, but here we encounter a problem, one that the author raises for us and that brings us to this subject of suffering. God has put all things in subjection under the sun, but we don't see everything in subjection to the sun. So verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Oh, that's such great news that this one that we have allied ourselves with, he is the one to whom all things belong. He is the heir of the world. All things have been placed under him. But we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Certainly this must have been an observation not lost on the original readers. The author has been at pains to show that Jesus is superior to the angels that in a sense they have left behind. Well, that's well and good. But then how come those who have aligned themselves with the angels, as it were, the folks that they've left behind, are getting along swimmingly Well, those that have aligned themselves with the Son, who is supposedly the heir of all things and the one to whom all things belong, are getting their ears boxed. Life experience doesn't seem to be bearing out the reality of what the author is saying. If all things are in subjection to the Son, then what's the big deal? And I think, or what what is the deal? Not the big deal. What is the deal? I think that's a very reasonable question. Because it's not only a question for the, these early Jewish followers of Jesus, but it's our question as well. As Christians, we say that God is in control of all things. We say that Jesus sits upon the throne at God's right hand. But then we look around the world at all the chaos of our culture, at all the chaos of our own lives, and it doesn't seem to add up. Because the fact of the matter is that when we look around the world, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. I mean, the good news, at least, is that the Bible doesn't ask us to pretend that we do. The author author of Hebrews is very candid and honest here. Let me just, lets us just call a spade a spade. The world at large and our own personal worlds, perhaps even more importantly, are to varying degrees a mess. We're just honest with ourselves. They're not as bad as they could be, most of us, but they're not as good as they should be if Jesus really was in subjection of all things. So where is faith in all of this? Well, note what the author says. He says, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus, But we do see him. That's what we do see. What we don't see is everything in subjection to Jesus. But what we do see is Jesus. We don't see everything in subjection to the Son, but we do see the one to whom everything is subject. Or we can say it like this. We have not yet seen the full outworking of Jesus' righteous sovereignty over creation, But we do see the sovereign Jesus. 
And in that lies the hope. So one of my favorite uh, books, one of my favorite uh, series of movies is Lord of the Rings. That may not uh, be true for you. Maybe you haven't seen or read Lord of the Rings. I don't judge you. I know, I know good people who have not read Lord of the Rings, and so I don't, I don't stand in judgment over you. But they're fantastic, uh, fantastic. But so many different uh, facets of Tolkien's work there is meant to draw and open our eyes to see uh, pictures of the gospel. He was a devout uh, Christian, and so there's woven all throughout various kind of figurines of Christ. And one of the great uh, moments in, uh, in the novels is, is this moment when King Theodone and all the heroes of the story are, are besieged at Helm's Deep. And things are very grim. The enemy that is arrayed against them is greater than them. They've been pressed back off the first set of walls and the second set of walls. And it really looks now that there is not much more than, than just an hour or two of, of life before they're completely overrun. And, and things are very bad. When you stand on the parapets and you look down into the battlefield and you see the hordes arrayed against the king and his heroes, it, it seems very grim. But then, of course, if you know the story, Gandalf the Grey, who has become Gandalf the White, he is the, he's the great hero of the story. And, and he's, he and his, his armies come, and they, they enter the battlefield off in the distance, sitting up on the horizon as the eastern sun comes and shines behind them, Gandalf glowing white. And so if you're, if you're King Theodon and you look down into the field, what you don't see it's everything in subjection to Gandalf. What you see is a lost cause. What you see is a lost battle. What you see is the end of your life. But when you look up and you see Gandalf, well, then it changes everything. Because Gandalf then, of course, rides down onto the scene of battle and defeats the enemies, right? And so even though you don't see everything in subjection to Gandalf the moment that he appears, once you see Gandalf then you know everything is going to be fine. The author of Hebrews is calling his readers to look beyond their present difficulties and to lift their eyes to see the coming one who sits on, enthroned on the horizon of their lives. He stands ready to deliver them like water brimming on the edge of a cup about to spill over. Hebrews 9.28, the author later on in chapter 9 uh, is going to make this observation about Christ. He references Christ's second coming. He says, the first time that Jesus came, he came to atone for sin. He came to make payment for sin. He came to suffer on our behalf. But the second time he comes, the author says, it won't be to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus has been enthroned and he stands ready now to return. And we, as the people of God, sit between the time that he has been exalted and the time that he returns. And we look out in our lives and we see the chaos of the enemy, as it were, arrayed against us. And if we look just at the field of battle, then we're going to recognize that it's a lost cause. We don't see everything in subjection to the Son. But when we lift our eyes and we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, ready to return and to deliver us, that is where our hope is found. So we don't see God's kingdom come, but we do see the coming King. 
We don't see the lordship of heaven here on earth, but we do see the Lord of heaven. We don't yet see sin vanquished, but we do see the vanquisher of sin. We do not yet see our lives avenged, but we do see the coming avenger. We do not yet see death defeated, but we do see the defeater of death. We persevere through suffering in the present, even when we can't see the outworking of Jesus' sovereignty, because we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. He's gone before us in faithful obedience. He, as the model of faith, has climbed the mountain all the way to the top. He has overcome every obstacle. And he has been crowned with glory and honor, vindicated and exalted by God. And now, as the author tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, he sits on the edge of his seat, readying himself to come again, waiting only, Jesus told his disciples, only from the word from the Father. And when he comes, he will bring at last all things under his control. The last remnants of rebellion, angelic, human, natural, ourselves, will all be stomped out. The world and our lives under the sovereign reign of the coming king will no longer cut against the grain, but will move with the grain. So let me ask you this then. In what aspect of your life do you most need to remember to lift your eyes and see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? For many of you here this morning, the path forward towards Christ is forcing you to claw your way over boulders of suffering and pain. And your hands and your knees and your elbows are all scraped up and your arms are weary and your legs ache. And some of you are in marriages where you can't see a way forward and it's all that you can do to hang on. Some of you are being called as parents to love beyond your capacities. Others of you are serving in communities where the needs that you are called to meet are just simply overwhelming, cannot possibly be met. Some of you are wrestling with the besetting sin that you have tried so hard to break, cannot seem to defeat it, and it just seems easiest to give up. Some of you are resisting pressure of your peers, perhaps it's at school, perhaps it's at work, but it's making you an outcast. Others of you are saying no to a relationship for Jesus' sake that you really want to say yes to. And others of you are saying yes to a relationship for Jesus' sake that you really would prefer to say no to. And you so badly want to just go back, let go, and turn back down the mountain. But God invites you this morning to take your eyes off of what you can't see. We do not yet see all things in subjection under the sun. Take your eyes off of what you can't see and turn your gaze to what you can see. 
If we look through the eyes of faith, we can see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. He's walked the road ahead of us. He's made it to the top, and now he stands on the near horizon of our lives. He's triumphed over the world. He's triumphed over the devil. He's triumphed over the flesh. God has put all things in subjection to him, and he will not fail us. He will not let our obedience and the sacrifice that comes from staying obedient to him, he will not let that fall to the ground unrewarded. This is so much the message of the book of Hebrews. God knows what he asks of us when he asks us to persevere in obedience. And what he's saying to us is that it will be worth the cost. He is good for it. He will make it up to us. That what we will get in the end so far outweighs the trials that we are being asked to endure. Doesn't mean that he's going to deliver us in every way at every moment that we desire. That was not true for Jesus. God did not deliver Jesus when Jesus wanted to be delivered. On purpose, God didn't deliver him. And Jesus will not deliver us in every way that we want to be delivered. On purpose. Obedience in the midst of trials is, many ways, the very means by which we grow into all that God calls us to be. Look back down here in our text. We see, we see Jesus who for a little while, who for a little while, was made lower than the angels. The eternal Son of God became lower than his creation. Not just lower than the angels, but, but even the lowliest man, even to death on a cross, became lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why was he crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. Jesus found his exaltation from the Father through the path of suffering and death. Not just in spite of suffering and death, but through suffering and death. Somehow, in ways that only God knows the measure for each of us, knows that we cannot become who we are meant to become without suffering and ultimately death. That the suffering that God calls us toward isn't, isn't just kind of inconveniently in the way, but he is calling us towards the very thing that makes us who we ultimately want to be and who he wants us to be. If it was that true for Jesus, how much more is it true for us? This is a point that the author is going to make very pointedly in the chapters to come. If Jesus himself, as our forerunner in faith, had to suffer, how much more do we? But God promises us, just as he was true to Jesus, that faithful obedience in the face of suffering and hardship is always worth the cost. The path of faith is necessarily marked by difficulties, but though it is marked by difficulties along the way, the good news, and that Jesus reveals to us, is that this path ends in victory and triumph when it does end. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. We stay the course. We stay steady on. 
We keep our eyes on him because we see the one who has been crowned with glory and honor and in seeing him crowned with glory and honor, it gives us hope to believe, to know that the world around us that has not yet come under his sovereignty one day will come under his sovereignty. He will not leave us. He will not abandon us. He will be true to his word and he will reward our faithful obedience to him. Amen? God, thank you that you have shown yourself faithful to Jesus, and in that, we can rest confidently that you will be faithful to us. We see a world around us, Lord, not just the world outside of us, but the world inside of us that is uh, under chaos and not always what it should be, not always what it could be, and Lord, if we just let our gaze focus there, how discouraging and hopeless it all could be for us. But even though we don't yet see all things brought in subjection to the Son, we do see the Son. We see him crowned with glory and honor, and he is our hope. We lay our uh, faith and our hope at his feet. God, give us strength. Give strength to those here, Lord, that in particular are just having a hard time where obedience to you is costing something. Give them confidence to believe that you are a rewarder of those who seek you, that you will make good on the faithful obedience, that you will not let the sacrifice fall to the ground, God. Give them faith to believe your promises, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.